Hello fellow time travelers, Tony Whit here. Not long after we recorded this episode, we received word that Mary Corte, Trey's mother, had died at the age of 77. We would like to dedicate this episode to her. We are going on a journey, a very long journey, through the world of the Target novelizations and publication order. Every week, we are looking at a new book, talking about Terrace Dix, Malcolm Hulk, and all our Doctor Who novelization friends. Whatever you do, keep turning the pages. This is Jason Miller of the Doctor Who Literature Podcast, a member of the Direction Point Podcast Network, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Rupert Booth. I am known as Paul Ferry. And my name is Barry Williams. Together, we host Time Ram. Time Ram's a cruel mistress. It's a random number generator. That also. We roll a number from 1 to 30, and that's our doctor. Then 1 to 300 for the story, and then we ram them together. Even if it doesn't make sense. Cruel, I tell you. Time Ram. Putting the wrong doctors in the wrong stories, so you don't have to. You're listening to Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Ian McNeese. Yes, I played Winston Churchill in The Victory of the Daleks in Doctor Who, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. I know I will. Bye now. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the protean task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. Protean, that's a word that AP students should really know. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have an equally protean four-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. There's our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Alison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Alison. Hello. And finally, we have a fan who's far more of an expert than I could ever claim to be, and who obviously knows the meaning of the word protean, the tantalizing Trey Corte. Hello, Trey. Hello! And of course you know what protean is. Um, there's a couple reasons for this. One, protean means changing in form and function, but it also means of great variety. And yes, I think that would describe this uh, particular podcast. If you like what you're hearing, though I can't see why, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you receive goodies, just like giving the PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them. You store them in a dimensionally transcendent... Uh, da, 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 a dimensionally transcendent... A dimensionally transcendent vessel. You know how difficult that is to say? Because you just want to keep saying transcendental. Dimensionally transcendent vessel shaped like an Iron Maiden 
finally got it out, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lamby, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, Simon Painter, Joseph Milton Welling, Louise Dennis, and Bluey. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. We also have a Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. We continue our discussion of Peter Davison's second season as the Doctor as we discuss the novelization of The King's Demons. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the King's Demons, adapted by Terrence Dudley from a script that aired from 3.15.83 to 3.16.83, published by Target Books in July 1986. As of this recording in July 2023, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an unabridged audiobook, 153 pages. Now, we've discussed Terrence Dudley so many times on this show already. <laughs> so if you want to hear about him, go back to our discussions of K9 and Company or Four to Doomsday or Black Orchid because I really just don't want to talk about him anymore. <laughs> and this is the last time we have to, thank goodness. This is his final contribution to the series, though the publication of this book predates the publication of Black Orchid which is why that latter book contains the downright erroneous reference to the events of this story. Why this mistake made it past the editor is unclear, but as they say in the publishing biz, oops. <laughs> it's rather telling that Eric Sayward did not want to commission Dudley again because of the problems he'd had with the writer taking his suggestions for edits. Nor did he want to bring the master back since he considered the character to be inferior. He was overridden on both of these decisions by producer John Nathan Turner. In a continuation of what we can see now was a pattern throughout Peter Davison's tenure, one which will come to an unfortunate head towards the end of the next Doctor's tenure. I haven't been able to find out what Sayward thought of Chameleon, though it's likely J&T would have overridden him on that one as well. Imagineering's Richard Gregory suggested that J&T have a look at this robotics project created by Chris Padmore and software designer Mike Power. The robot could mimic human movement and could mime pre-recorded speech, and Gregory thought it could be used on the show in some capacity, probably as, as a one-off or something. The robot was demonstrated for the production team, and J&T was so taken with it that he decided it could be used as a new companion, much in the same way as K-9 was. Hmm. Obviously, John Nathan Turner had forgotten all of the headaches that came with K-9 that caused him to retire the robot dog in the first place, and sure enough, this new robot would cause even more of them. After the demonstration, J&T agreed to use the robot with the hope that it would be capable of walking by the time the story began shooting. <laughs> However, between the demonstration and the recording dates, Mike Power was killed in a boating accident. And no one else understood the robot's programming language well enough to program it to walk. I don't know what difficulty I expected you to relate, but it was not that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, come to think of it, I, I, I honestly don't think they would have done it even if Mike Power were still alive. But I have my reasons for thinking that. So, 
No one understood this programming well enough to get it to walk, much less do the weeks of programming it took to mime the dialogue. And on that basis, JNT decided, probably wisely, that the robot could not be used as a companion after all, and that it would be brought back in the story of the following season, which would be its last. Unfortunately, he didn't tell any fans this, so we kept expecting to see Chameleon again. Terrence Dudley actually did two good things that made this whole situation a bit more feasible. For one thing, he introduced the android's ability to shapeshift, and so he named it Chameleon, so that other actors could portray it, which they could have done. That actually could have worked, and Sayward, in fact, tried to use the robot in another story the following season before its departure but it got cut for time. It's entirely possible to imagine having a new guest actor portraying Chameleon each time, or having one actor play his humanoid form. That's been done on the Orville, for instance. Sadly, or maybe even thankfully, this never happened. The late, great Craig Hinton wrote a book set after the story called The Crystal Bucephalus for the Virgin Missing Adventures series that strove to explain a few things such as why we don't see Chameleon more often, why the TARDIS console room will look so different from the next story onwards, and even how the Doctor in his next incarnation will claim to be 900 years old, despite the last time we heard him give his age, it was 756. And it's well worth reading if you can track down a copy of it. All right, let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? You know, I haven't done one of these in a while. Let me grab it off my table. And I'll do it. It is March 2015. No, it isn't. Oh my god, this is why I haven't done one of these in a while. Alright. It is March 4th, 1215. And the TARDIS materializes in England during a jousting match held in the presence of King John. But it soon becomes apparent to the Doctor that something is very seriously wrong. Why does John express no fear or surprise at the time traveler's sudden appearance, and indeed welcome them as the king's demons? And what is the true identity of Sir Gilles, the king's champion? Very soon, the doctor finds himself involved in a fiendish plan to alter the course of world history by one of his oldest and deadliest enemies. Two guesses who it is, and the first one doesn't count. Well, Carlo told us it was a hairy Frenchman. Yes. (laughs) Well, it still is a hairy Frenchman, actually. (laughs) All right, let's get some first impressions on this one. Um, Dalton, when you first got this and you saw this actually quite striking cover, what did you think? The android on the cover reminded me of the cover of Queen's album, News of the World, which terrified me as a kid absolutely like my sister would pull it out of my parents record collection and show it to to me and i would run away because even though that giant robot is not doing anything to the people on the cover just the 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 image of something that big picking people up just terrified me i'm pretty sure there's some blood on there too so i was like why is he crushing them but so (laughs) this this very much evoked that same feeling of this weird fucking robot and of course it's huge over the castle which i know is like a it's not actually that big of course but so that's that's kind of the first thing i got there and then yes upon reading the back of the book 
It's like, yep, uh, the master's showing up. Uh, I wasn't <laughs> sure if he was going to be the king or Sir Jill, uh, but yeah, immediately it's like, who who, the, who else is this going to be? Who else is uh, one of his oldest and deadliest enemies? All right, cool, great, awesome. <laughs> Another master story. So wasn't super enthused about this upon reading the back cover and seeing the cover although it is it, it's a pretty nice uh painting on on the front so i'm glad that we have that yeah and i think chameleon's probably actually jamming out to don't stop me now so there is mm-hmm. that connection allison what was your first impression of it uh, i was glad to see they were enrolling robots at the old town school of folk music and uh <laughs> that, reading the back i actually completely forgot anything about the master uh i was excited there was going to be historical because we haven't seen a historical in i don't want to say how many episodes but like how many doctors i can't even remember hmm. it's been a the really last long time, time the last time we had a pure historical was the first doctor's time i think no am mm-hmm. i wrong about that second Maybe. doctor's time yeah a Black Orchid, yeah, I guess that counts. Yeah, Black Orchid was the last one that we said was a historical, which Allison got out of reading that one. There was so. a visitation. Yes, did. <laughs> did I wriggle out? With my yeah, you wriggled wild. out of that one. Yeah. But, okay. We got the visitation as a pseudo-historical. Yeah, but that doesn't really count, does it? It's still science fiction-y. I was excited about it. Uh, and boy, was I in for uh, quite the mixed bag. Okay. And Trey, uh, your first impression goes back a bit further than theirs, obviously. It's a very special book for me because it was my first Target novel that I purchased on my own at a Doctor Who convention. Oh. And it was TimeCon 86, and I'm just going to tell the story. Anthony Ainley, who played the Master, was one of the guests, and he was taking Q&As, and he actually talked about the French accent in this episode and that he had to put on. And then I asked a question about his favorite and least favorite stories, and he said that he, his least favorite story to do was this one because he didn't like how he put on the accent. And I'm like 10 at the time, because it was time to 86. And he's like, oh, you were a very brave boy for asking a question, so I've got something for you. So in front of everyone, he gets me up there, and he has this cricket ball that he gives me. Oh. So I have this cricket ball that's still on my shelf right there, and it's kind of faded. But then um, later on, my mom had, she had made my fifth doctor costume, and so I did this little act, the young costume contest division for the children that was in it. And I said, like, because everyone's seen this happen. So I was like, my arch enemy gave me a cricket ball, but I think it's a device of death or something. And I had the ball on the stage and, you know, I was a little Hampton. And um, nice. then he signed it, you know, at the autograph line. He remembered it. And so he was, he was really, really charming. And so then when I had, like, my pocket money, and I was actually not with my parents. I was, like, with a family friend and so i was like trying to choose which of the new books i'd get so i decided to get the king's demons and then i tried reading it and it was above my reading level at 10 years old and so mm-hmm. i didn't really revisit it until high school so it's also an interesting case of who what age group are these books being because you know there's a lot of vocabulary in this one that is just over people's heads and i there's a few words in there that i jot down that I don't know. but looking at it now like my first impression is like i think the cover is nice, but it's also, it, it gives the big twist away, you yep. know, and just like the enlightenment thing. So it's like, and I know I'm t- t- I'm in storytelling mode, but I also use the King Stevens, the, the TV version, 10 years ago when I was teaching at this Performing Arts Charter School. It was right before the 50th anniversary. 
and I did this whole unit. I had a bunch of Doctor Who fans. We did a whole unit on historical fiction and how Doctor Who treats historical fiction and how Doctor Who's changed. And so each week of the unit was a different decade. So in the 80s, I showed them The King's Demons as a sample because it was short. And without knowing anything, because most of the kids were like new series fans, so they knew who the master was. But other than that, they knew nothing about this. So all the reveals, Sir Gilles is the master. Um, the Iron Maiden is the master's TARDIS. And then the big reveal, and it's filmed beautifully. If you don't know anything about it, when you first see, you hear the king's voice, and then they open the door, and it's this fucking robot, you know, <laughs> it's a really striking image. It's an iconic image, and it's what Doctor Who does so well. If you're reading the book now, you're just waiting for this damn android to show up. And, <laughs> and that doesn't happen until the very end. So my first impression as a kid was that I liked the story on TV, but... The book was too confusing, and I didn't understand what was going on, and the words were too hard. So I put it away, and then I did pick it up again in like in middle school or high school, and then I enjoyed it. It's one of the few Doctor Who books, and turns out these other stuff that actually sympathetically shows characters' religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And as someone who was raised in a very evangelical type household, and was a true believer at the time, that really did something. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can see that. It's unfortunate that the history is a bit off in this particular story though because a lot of that sympathy towards religion that you're talking about is all having to do with the crusades which king john himself did not actually participate in so the fact that they keep talking about the crusades and him trying to raise money for them is kind of like well wait a minute his older brother did that and then they started them again after john died but john himself uh, spent most of his time fucking around in France. For me, it was more of like the, the family. I was their only child, and he was really cute on screen. So, mm, yes, but he the is. fact that they believe that like hell is real and they're saying prayers, and so this family that's being kind of manipulated by both the Doctor and the Master, and who are pretty much the only characters in Doctor Who who seem to have some sort of belief in God or prayers and everything. I latched onto that as, as a young reader, and, and I related to it, and I connected to it, and hmm. I feel kind of weird about it now, but it, I do remember feeling appreciative of those characters in the book at the time. Hmm, okay. And I wonder how many other people actually also responded to it the same way, because you're right, they're not treated as stupid Mm-mm. for having these beliefs. It does seem a bit bizarre to think of the interior of the TARDIS as a vision of hell, but enough about Jodie Whittaker's TARDIS. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> well, and that's, that's what I wish they had done so much more, like reading it now. This idea that the Doctor as a demonic being or being ascribed to, and the fear and the terror that religious people would have. And, and I think Dudley must have been religious because he's the one who had Sarah Jane praying in the chapel in the United oh, Company. Yeah. And you've got um, and I remember this was a big I, I pointed this out to my parents when I first read the Black Orchid book because at the very end after Cranley dies, the doctor says there but for the grace of God go all of us which is not in the TV series but right. it's something that the doctor says and it's interesting that the two other TV stories he's associated with Megloth is all about religion, he just directed that when he didn't write the script I would, I would have loved to have seen what he would have done novelizing for the Doomsday, because that also is very philosophical. And monarch is God, and there's theology happening somewhere in the background of all this. And 
I think the, a story about the doctor and the master manipulating a family and their beliefs. And it's also, there's something about smear campaign. And it doesn't come across on screen, but I think the novel could do something really, really good. We've got these innocent family who are being kind of taken from a ride and they're not sure what to believe. Maybe that's mirroring my own struggles with faith. But that, that's why I was really interested in this book, because I like that aspect of the plot. On, on screen, they're just really stupid and impressionable in some ways. Mm-hmm. But for the book, you know, you, you see that they are both being manipulated, both the doctor and the master are manipulating them in this car struggle, and they're kind of just pawns. And that's an interesting dynamic that I think the new series occasionally taps into. I wasn't sure which side the writer fell on there, because the doctor and the master seem so contemptuous of the 13th century people. And I wasn't sure if the writer was sort of critiquing that or joining in with it. It seemed to almost alternate. There's a, a somewhat entertaining bomb-throwing theory that Western Satanism is a form of Christianity. <laughs> Both the religious form and the atheistic form. That uh, people look at the Christian development of the concept of Satan and say, yeah, that's my guy. Um, <laughs> it's actually not an ancient belief system. And I, I thought this book did some very entertaining things with that. We have the idea of Branoff is beholding the doctor and his companions and thinking about, you know, where they come from, from hell. There's a record number of uses of the word hell here uh, in a very literal way in this book. And he's thinking of his prayers the night before, and he says that they weren't all directed towards heaven. So eh, maybe this is the answer to his prayers. And there's this interesting subversive idea throughout that that household is praying and it's mostly to God, but not always. <laughs> it's sort of sort of like uh, there might be sort of um, the equivalent of imprecatory psalms to, you know, whomever might be listening. Well, I'm sure it kind of botches things just a little bit that the doctor ends up saving Sir Geoffrey in this version, which doesn't happen on screen, another big change, so that forever after, Ranulph and his family are going to think, oh, we have demons to thank for all this. But they also have demons to blame for it, much as we do. Lady Elizabeth explicitly drew the conclusion that they were not demons because demons were evil and the doctor had saved some people. Oh, okay. All right. I That probably went past me on the second reading because mm-hmm. <laughs> I went through this book twice. Yeah. Whenever, whenever the doctor finally kind of gets her to come around to him at the end, he says, you know, I have never lied to you. And he explicitly states that I told you from the beginning, I am not a demon. I have told you I'm not here to hurt you. I have told you you can trust me. Yes, and I remember liking that. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of surprised that I forgot that she'd come to the conclusion he wasn't. So, okay, yeah. I <laughs> I retract. What other things did we like about this book? Apparently, I now love everything about Turlo. <laughs> I guess I love a weird little guy. So I thought he was, once again, very entertainingly written as he contemplated well, which form of death or suffering would be more convenient <laughs> and more efficient for the situation? <laughs> and I don't know if it's an easy character to write or everyone just loves him, but for a fourth story in a row, he's uh, pretty fun. I, I do love his hypochondria. That's exactly what Dudley calls it, his hypochondria, where he's thinking that he's going to lose his hands because they're um, up in shackles above his head and he's lost the feeling in them. It's like, no, no, that's not going to happen he's thinking, well, I could get really angry and that would be easy enough and that would increase my circulation. <laughs> <laughs> 
I felt like the writer had a lot of fun with his low-key persistent villainy that even though he's not trying to kill the doctor anymore, you know, he still just kind of defaults to somewhat evil, but, you know, pragmatic evil. Yeah, Dudley gets a lot more use out of him on the page than he does on screen because unfortunately we're we're now going to see the turn in Turlow's character to just being more of a background companion mm. to the Doctor and Tegan show. But I was curious what would happen with the character now that he's not actively being coerced into an assassination plot against the Doctor. And to my delight, he doesn't actually change that much. <laughs> he doesn't no. change that much, but his kind of nefariousness is... Uh... Not as effective. He tries to talk his way out of things and it doesn't work in this story. Whereas in past stories, he's been a little more successful with that kind of sneakiness and, and weaseling his way out. But this time it just seems to kind of get him in more trouble. But I thought his frustrations were expressed in a very funny way. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I like a lot of the humor and the wordplay that was present. But then there was a lot of lines that was making me giggle that I'm sure that Terrence Dudley probably didn't intend. Like the whole thing about the bed being big enough for six people and it's a way of keeping warm. And then there was like a line that was the master seeing, oh, he's just another young man who could be used to his fool before being disposed of. And I was like, there's some old gays that are probably not in that category. Yes. <laughs> there were a lot of things there. I wasn't sure if they were winks or I was just being impure. <laughs> Well, no, I was thinking the same thing, <laughs> especially when Trey told us about, you know, Anthony Ainley carrying around his balls for little boys. So, <laughs> oh, no. sorry, I don't mean to, I don't mean to no, do that. It was, it was really sweet. It was, it was there sweet. Wasn't anything creepy about it. That's why I didn't say anything about it. But it popped back into my head just at that moment. You're right, though. There, there are some little touches that are at, more than above the vocabulary level of the average target reader here. I like the, I like the jailer. Yes. Uh, the what? The jailer. The jailer. <laughs> the jailer. Oh yes. Oh, we. They, he goes back to that well a couple times, doesn't mm -hmm. he? That's a character that doesn't have anything to do on screen. In fact, I don't think the jailer even appears on I screen. I think there might be an extra or something, but like I don't know. It's not a yeah. character. Yeah, that's well, but acknowledging the Italian opera comedy of the extremely high traffic they suddenly have in their dungeon, and not, someone's bringing equipment, and he brought in his maiden, and it's all it's all very French. What do I know? <laughs> that and I love the fact that Turlo gets this moment of realization that Estram is an anagram for master, which is not something we get on screen either. And the doctor, instead of saying, "Oh, yeah, now you figure it out," is more like, "Well done." He actually praises him uh, wholeheartedly for it. It's like, oh, that's kind of sweet. Yeah, even though he spends most of the story snipping and snapping and being short with Tegan about not keeping up with all of his antics, you know. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so many times. What is up with this? Yeah. That the doctor hates <laughs> Tegan with... There's like this burning contempt. Like, does he sit around fantasizing about Tegan dying at night? Like, this is a n new thing to introduce that the fifth doctor detests Tegan like no other living creature. Well, like, there's our segue. Where is this coming from? <laughs> oh. I have an idea of a theory about where it could come from. but I'd I would to love it. to hear it because I was trying to figure out if this was misogynistic and centered on Tegan or the idea was either that 
that the writer or the doctor or both hate Tegan so much that it just sort of mushroomed into a generalized misogyny <laughs> because anything associated with Tegan must be terrible. <laughs> I, yeah, and this is like, I, I used to, I, I had better memories of this book, and then I was looking at some of the racism and sexism I'm reading this time around. I was like, damn, you know? And the one, and I was trying to think, where does this weird characterization of Tegan and the doctor's relationship come from? And Tony, when I looked back and saw that this was written in 1986, and I was thinking about who in the current Doctor Companion on television was. Oh, that is makes this sense. what Dudley is thinking? Because we're we're, we're going to get a very spiky Doctor Companion relationship coming up. And was it actual Lilith? Because for those of us who don't know, we can't imagine anyone. <laughs> Who would be horrific enough to incite this level no, of but, rage? No, uh, but she could definitely be. will get there, and so I, I feel like I'm, I'm getting ahead. Of it. But that was the only thing I was thinking because I was asking myself, where is this antagonism between the Doctor and companion coming mm -hmm. from all of a sudden? And that sort of that those barbs and those things. But but Tony, you know exactly the two that I'm thinking of. I do. Uh, I will venture just one question, Doctor. What precisely do you do in there? Argue mainly, and that's what—that's who would have been on TV when this was being written, and were the current ones. And I don't know if Dudley's thinking, "Oh, this is the direction they're going. This is how we want it," or maybe it was just, "Yay, I can be misogynistic now, and I'm allowed to be." And um, so you think it's, it's that in general, and not Tegan in particular? I think I think it's I think he's well. I think he's using both of the companions as a bit of a blank slate, just kind of having putting his own baggage on both of them. Turlo is a bit different, and he's fun, but it, like the hypochondria and some of... Yeah, the weaseliness is still there and the other things, but the hypochondria are like the sort of denseness of figuring out the anagram after that being like the butt of the joke. That's unique to the story with Turlo, so there's just... There's not a lot there, and he's not really basing it on what the actor's gave, so I think he's doing something very different. And, and again, this is the era of Dynasty and all those things where what drama was was characters just sniping at each other. <laughs> that was something that John Nathan Turner tries to introduce into the series around the time that the book is being written. So that's that's my speculation. I'm, I could be completely off on. But a lot of this was not sniping in dialogue. It was thinking very dark things about the characters thinking very dark things about one another. Right. I thought it was interesting because my impression is was was probably not on the screen. No, it was not. Tegan is complaining on screen, yes, because she's cold, as I'm sure Janet Fielding was in, uh, indeed cold. Definitely but, came through in the adaptation. Tegan's cold. Yeah, yes. yeah, <laughs> yeah. But all of that additional stuff that we're seeing with the doctor thinking, oh, Miss Hoity Toity, or whatever it is, that bizarre Ooh. line of his. It, it's not a line, it's all in their heads. The newer stuff, the stuff that is, has been added has even more of that vitriol and rancor and antagonism, which the actors themselves were specifically trying to get out of the characters at the time. So it's kind of like... Well, they're definitely on screen. They're very much in partnership in the sequences in the backpointing hall. Tegan's grumbling, but the doctor's like, just trust me, play it along, and she's willing to play along. And then like he entrusts her to get into the TARDIS. They kind of plan that and pilot it, which again, Terrence Dudley's having... Tegan pilot the TARDIS at the end, which he doesn't for the doomsday. But so there's a lot of trust in the action. So yeah, it is this weird subconscious stuff 
And then it makes me, as, as we're saying this, Chameleon, who's under the Doctor's will, transforms into Tegan at the very end. So uh, there could probably be a Freudian read on that somewhere. but Because mm-hmm. <laughs> she is Lilith. Yeah. Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, and there's the incubus and the succubus. We all know the succubus is worse, right? Of course it is. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Like we do. Oh, hoity, um, toity, hoity, jolly, well, toity, Allison. <laughs> well, if you don't mind me doing a little dramatic reading, I've got I've accumulated some evidence here. Sure. Well, so the uh, what darker lines here is put in the words of the master. I was going to ask if it was on screen. Uh, your Tegan has failed you. The female mind is cunning but undisciplined. Is that on the episode? <laughs> no. No, but okay. I, I want to hear Anthony really say that. But oh. that's that's the doctor. But let's see here. Different verbs applied to Tegan. Tegan dithered. She screams and shakes a lot. Oh, she she resorted to the irresistible violence of feminine wiles by lying, by saying a man hurt her. She fluttered. The doctor calls her, ooh, clever girl. I know this is years before Jurassic Park. There's this whole, there is a whole thing of children are clever, women are clever. It's, it's a whole less than a man thing. She's a succubus, which is worse. Let's see here. She swoons. Yes. She, there's a whole thing where the doctor is gripping her arm in such a way it's hurting it, but that's good for her. That's what she needs. Frightened, frightened. I'm frightened. Yes, you're frightened. Um, let's see here. Taking orders from a maroon stewardess. Let's see here. Screamed, bleated, squealed, squeaked. <laughs> like, I mean, yes. it's an impressive uh, creativity, but it it became a little overwhelming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to the point where, I, well, um, I, I brought this up before, but um, blank out on his name. Who's the famous? Who's the great racist sci-fi writer? Um, oh, I blank out on. Yes, yes. People have talked about how Lovecraft, instead of taking it on an imperious air of racism, is so obviously and openly neurotic about his racism that it's kind of confessional. <laughs> um, so this really does seem like something that the writer should take to his therapist. But I, I started halfway, not halfway through, like 10 pages in entertaining myself by wondering if this was a novelization adapted by Adric, not the actor, <laughs> the, char- the character himself, like, ah, oh, right. dizzy dames, or yes. by uh, Dale Gribble. <laughs> oh, God, The King man. of the Hill character, thinking specifically of the Ren Fair episode <laughs> where Dale wants to tell us about gender politics. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> During the medieval and Renaissance and Reformation era, eras. <laughs> Talking about the or- orderly disposition of the widow. So, In the Middle Ages, there was an orderly procedure for the dispensation of the wife. Unlike in today's gynocracy, ownership goes from the son to the dog to the best friend. Bobby's too young. Lady Bird's too old. I already own a wife. Boomhauer doesn't have the time. So, Bill... This could be your end. I, maybe I was supposed to be offended, but I think I was laughing so hard by the end. Thinking, dude, you need to talk to somebody about your unresolved issues here. I think you're right about that because you're attributing this misogyny to Adric, and Adric's most misogynist line comes from Four to Doomsday, which is a Terrence Dudley script. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, once again, I is he making fun of Adric, or is he. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, and like I, sadly, I think not. Because that could be very insightful. Like, well, Adric is very young. That's a normal phase to go through. But And here I was thinking, wait, 
is it the doctor he hates? <laughs> Writing the doctor is hating Tegan because he doesn't actually like the fifth doctor. He doesn't like Tegan. Actually, the conclusion I drew is he doesn't like either one of them. He doesn't seem to, I don't to, think no. he likes the fifth doctor, and I don't think he likes Tegan. Yeah, the fifth doctor is very unlikable in this book because of the misogyny and general other things. For that matter, Tegan's unlikable because she, at one point she tries out some downright racism because she says the Aborigines back in Australia must have been in 1215, pretty much the same as they were in the 80s. Primitive and without social graces like chivalry, but they killed to eat and not for amusement. It's like, holy shit! Well, and, and the thing is, if you know anything about Janet Fielding, the actress who plays Tegan, her belief she's a staunch feminist and she's she was critical of the show like way back before it became fashionable to be critical mm-hmm. of the show stuff and, and you know she's very anti-racist so you know I, one could imagine if they had given her this book to do like the audio adaption you know and like she she probably doesn't even know what's happening to her character because this is this is because had this been written in the script janet fielding would have totally objected to it yeah, she, she would. She would not have. She is. She would not have put up with it. And I feel like Janet Fielding is one history, in comparison. Oh, absolutely. I, she I has. mean, I uh, actually looked up the year Malcolm Hulk died here to confirm my theory that Malcolm Hulk had to die before he could get away with this crap. <laughs> I was actually thinking more about the political theory that we have going on here. <laughs> but, um, like I said, I, I should be more horrified, but it's more like looking at an artifact. I mean, I'm hor- I'm horrified, but I, this, the, 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 there has been a resurgence of this kind of thought, but it's a last gasp. It's no longer dominant thought, right. I should well, say. Dudley was born in like 1919, I think I read. Mm-hmm. So... This is kind of like this is like my this is like my grandparents if they wrote a Doctor Who novel. Yeah, it's very much a John Pertwee form of masculinity. Doctor, before you go, one question. Yes. Where in the galaxy is Sanusi? Show us your tits, and I'll tell you. Hmm. Let's not blaspheme John Pertwee. Well, it's that British conservative. It, it seems very terribly English British form of social conservatism. Yeah. No. Yeah. He manages to place it in the fifth doctor's head, though, to the point that all throughout my notes, I'm seeing that I've written the phrase, oh, fuck off, doctor, several times, because it's just not the fifth doctor. This just isn't. No, it's not. John Nathan Turner says, we're going to make the fifth doctor look like an Edwardian cricketer. And so if you look at the fifth doctor's costume, this would definitely be, and we saw this in Black Market, this would definitely, these attitudes and reactions is exactly what you would expect from someone of that historical era from Earth in England. Mm. Except he doesn't do it with the Fifth Doctor when we get to Black Orchid. All of these bad personality traits of the Fifth Doctor are gone by the time we get to Black Orchid, except for the one, which I find is weirdly repeated here, his discomfort when Tegan's face shines with admiration when he praises her. And it's like, oh my God, these two need to get a room. Well, this is the part that I actually found not funny, sad, but more like kind of disturbing, is that the Doctor is very contemptuous of Tegan throughout. And she does sometimes accomplish things and he you know, thinks positively of them, but Tegan has, like, battered woman syndrome or something. Like, she hates, hates him and, like, fantasizes about his death a couple of times. 
And then we're told that she loves and admires him. Like she has, we're told these extremes of emotion to want to kill him, to hate him, and also to love him and to live only for his praise. That is uh, it's pretty dark. Yes. Literally at one point she describes him as loving him. So yeah, I think you're right there. You can fall down the stairs and see if I care. And it doesn't really seem to be that much of a joke. Yeah. I I don't know what Terrence Dudley's marital life was like, but I was under, I'm wondering if he ever got divorced <laughs> and whether he was going through one when he wrote this because it is so out of character for both of them. Well, so the first couple of chapters of the book, I take it back, it's not a couple of chapters, first 1.5 chapters don't feature the Doctor at all, which I think is always kind of interesting when we start the story fully with no Doctor and companions for a full chapter or so. Mm-hmm. And I cannot remember the name of the writer now, but the writer who wrote The Red Tent, which is, she described as a midrash on the uh, on some of the women in Genesis, and specifically Dinah is the main character. She said she wanted to portray polygamy of that time and place in a matter-of-fact way, that she wasn't talking about the politics of polygamy. It was just, this is a polygamous society. She's looking at the specific relationships. So hmm. the beginning, the first chapter here, I thought it was actually kind of interesting and engaging to have this kind of family in this time and place and it dealt with them in a very interior way, like sort of the, the three members of our core family here putting on a brave face in a different way that's what's expected of them according to social position of their family and the position they each are in in terms of, of gender and generation, etc. And I thought that was actually very engaging. Yeah, I'll, I'll give him this much. They're on a roller coaster ride of emotions, the Fitzwilliams, and Dudley actually tracks each one of their, you know, switchbacks pretty well. Yes, and while they're they are putting on what they feel is the appropriate face at different times of displaying the emotion that is socially expected and the thing, we see that kind of breaking down behind the eyes in a way that I thought was pretty interesting. But then I got this dark feeling that he was contrasting Lady Isabella with Tegan and Lady Isabella was his ideal. And Tegan (laughs) was the modern woman who had so disappointed him. Oh, yeah. I can see that. He can just go take a a long walk off a short pier. You almost get a sense of maybe in a more skilled writer or if a woman writing it or... I felt like there was a time where, like, maybe, especially because, like, Tegan is been seen as Lilith. Because there's a bit where, like, when it looks like the doctor's almost won the sword duel, she loses herself and throws her hands around Randolph and kisses him because she's just so excited the doctor won the sword fight and then the master pulls out the shoot compression eliminator. And then towards the end where there could have been something really cool with her playing up how the people in 1215 would have regarded women, particular powerful women that with a sexual demon energy or something, and just manipulating them like, okay, you want me to play the wily seductress woman yeah. who's feeling, yeah. and, and then using it to her advantage, that could be a really, really clever thing, which is, I think, what modern writers do with this sort of thing. But it's, it's so unfocused that is Tegan playing it up as the helpless stereotypical woman? Or she's just acting like the emotional, stereotypical woman. And the the tone seems really uncertain there. Yeah, the doctor says she's homesick. 
Well, and the doctor says at one point, or he doesn't say this, actually, he thinks it. He saw, it as, he saw Tegan's face go blank, because the doctor sighs at a lot of people in this book, as he <laughs> says extremely cryptic things, and it's very judgmental for them not picking it up right away. He says, for a bright girl, she was sometimes very slow in the uptake. <laughs> I'm thinking Tegan's entire persona is that she is kind of a pill, but she is very good at improvising, has very high emotional intelligence, is very good at figuring out things in the moment. This isn't the thing he should even be annoyed about yeah. somehow. Exactly. It just didn't fit her usual characterization. Mm-mm. Nor his. That's that's probably the biggest thing that stands out from this book. What what else stands out? What else did we like? What else did we dislike? <laughs> Sorry, go back to the doctor. Uh, hates Deegan. Oh yes, my dear girl, but you mustn't allow moral repugnance to blind you to intellect. <laughs> oh my God, guys, Twitter's dying today. Yes, <laughs> you, don't to, you don't need to stick another dagger in the heart. <laughs> oh God, yeah, and that's not a Fifth Doctor line at all. No, that's the thing. It's it's not that you can't do something with a character saying something like that and explore that. But yeah. it once again seemed like somebody else. That is not this doctor. Yeah. You can see the fourth doctor saying it. You can see the, the first doctor saying it. Yeah, or the sixth doctor. In fact, any other doctor except for the fifths. I'm, I'm warming to this theory because who's on TV when Terrence Dudley's writing this? The sixth doctor. But is he watching? <laughs> That's I what I wonder. I don't know. Wondering. Well, pro- I don't know. But it, it, he does seem to be mimicking the worst aspects of that era. And, and like I said, we're getting ahead of ourselves. But. I'm afraid, like, we're poisoning the well against the Sixth Doctor, whom I, I love the Sixth Doctor. But mm-hmm. there is that sort of spiky, that arrogance that the Sixth Doctor is very much in love with his own intellect and his use of words and how superior he is to all this. And Tom Baker has that, and Kirkley has that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Fifth Doctor, it really just comes out of nowhere. And yeah. And the thing with the Sixth Doctor is that if you pointed out his behavior to him and pointed out how it's looking, he would be aghast and he would kind of make a dramatic spiel about how aghast he is, but he would still be aghast at it, whereas the Fifth Doctor doesn't think these thoughts and doesn't say these words. So it's just very jarring. What else? Interesting contrast between what he says he's doing and he's actually doing because he puts in the mouth of the doctor several comments about how Tegan as a child of the 20th century doesn't has not received a very accurate description of the signing of the Magna Carta and of King John and of these times. She says something about the age of chivalry and it has this very funny line about how the North American idioms <laughs> dominated the speaking of English in her century. Oh, God. Yeah, that's a Sixth Doctor thing, too. But then he goes on to talk to talk this trash. It's been thoroughly debunked about how these people only took a bath once a year. I mean, he, like he actually, there are a lot of cliches in this book that are long disproved old chestnuts about medieval life. As well, so he he talks about how he's going to correct all these modern misunderstandings, and then he just spouts a lot of other misunderstandings. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking at my notes here, and it looks like because I have horrible penmanship, but it looks like I've written the doctor is such an asshole, but that's not what I've written. <laughs> um, and I wrote the doctor is such an esthete. Oh yeah. <laughs> What a delightful error. Potato, I potato. But there is that sort of like that as esthete snobbery, like, oh, she's using the language wrong and it's not proper. And, and then there's elements of that in the sixth doctor, but 
maybe is that what Dudley's trying to go for? Like that sort of like sniffy aesthetic, prissy sort of. Christina, you know, because like sometimes that's been a criticism of the Fifth Doctor that he's too soft, he's a bit defeat, um, and that that sort of sniffy precision with language and wanting things to look and act a certain way, and that that sort of fussiness that with we would associate that. Maybe that's what Dudley's trying to do. I don't know the, what he's trying to do. It's, it's it's obviously not working for us. Yeah, he may be a feat, but he's not fussy and he's not prissy. So, but he is in this book. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He is in this book. hate girls, yeah. He thinks everyone around him is stupid. Yes. Except for Turlo. But even Turlo, he's like, oh, congratulations, you figured out the anagram. Except he Uh, doesn't put it in that tone. He actually puts it in a more congratulatory tone. So it's like, okay, if Tegan had made that mistake, or if Tegan had said that, he would have been all over her. Is it that he thinks humans are stupid? Is not a human, so oh, a that's a point. Oh, God, I really hate this fifth doctor. But in, in terms of things I like about how Turlo is, is written here, one of the characters is asking uh, how he got here, and he says, I came with a doctor. He's asked, well, what is the doctor's purpose? And he thinks about that. Well, I really don't know. You know, he pleases himself most of the time and thinks about how he could really make up some interesting things about what is the doctor's purpose? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like Turlo's the bright spot of this adaptation. Yeah, I, I'll admit that. Well, and the different ways used to describe the targets by the 13th century people. It's his engine, it's his pavilion. I thought that was the sort of moments of making their perspective interesting. And there's a lot more of it here because quite obviously that whole business with Ranulf looking into the TARDIS and then backing away in horror, that never happens on screen. I would have loved to have that a scene like that on screen, but it doesn't happen. What else? I had a lot of the similar problems that I had with the Black Orchid, where it felt like Dudley was overly focused on his own wankery with talking about <laughs> castles and yes. uh, focusing on the use of French language, <laughs> mm-hmm. where and, oh, and also making a reference to cricket, which was totally unnecessary. He he has taken throw a cricket ball at the master on screen. She throws a knife, which I think is far more badass. <laughs> I did get the impression that he regarded both the master and Tegan as surprisingly good cricket players. <laughs> True. Yeah, but just he, he, you know, he brings up all these words that are used in cricket. So he talks uh, the first instance of it. He says there can't be more of it. He said confidently than good round the wicket stroke play. So it's like, why is he talking about cricket? Why is he talking about cricket when he's talking about being the best swordsman in France whenever he's about to fight Gilles? And it's like you're comparing being a good swordsman to being good at cricket. <laughs> I have a feeling he's trying to justify the Doctor being dressed as a cricketer, because this would have been the first time he wrote for the Fifth Doctor, whereas the next time he writes for the Fifth Doctor, it's all going to be cricket. Yeah. So that might be well, it. Yeah, and he, he really latches onto that, because as Fort of Jim, they have the damn cricket ball and space sequence, and the bullet Chinaman racist joke, and all of that crap, and then it's kind of like Fetch and Mean Girls, like, Dudley, stop trying to make cricket happen. It's <laughs> never going to happen. 
because it's really only in these three stories where you, you get the whole <laughs> also sort of sometimes sort of arranging francophilia and arranging francophilia and then sometimes uh, i was kind of expecting some sort of franco-british association to file some sort sort of complaint <laughs> some sort of open letter about look you need to back off dude i don't know what kind of bad experience you have but an excess of insults oh god they're french is actually about every 14th page i think janet fielding would have the same thing to say about dudley <laughs> need to get some help anything else you want to say about this one well i'm one thing that disappoints me about it and I don't know, and this may be a problem with the story. First of all, you know, big, I listened to the audios, and the audios did a big arc of, of things set between Enlightenment and King's Demons, and they bring Nyssa back, and she's older, but it's only been a couple of weeks for them. But but the thing is, like, starts off where Turlo and Tegan kind of resolve. Turlo just, it's just been revealed that Turlo tried to kill the Doctor, and was in this bargain, and this is just not addressed at all. And that that's always bothered me from enlightenment to king's demons that if one of my traveling companions i just found out have been in the secret bargain with like the satanic figure who's just gave up enlightenment and then i feel like there's a character beat there that is just not being addressed at all it's to me it's a big elephant in the room and that's always bothered me mm -hmm. the other thing is and maybe this is because chameleon was foisted upon dudley but he's expanding all this stuff about ranoff and hugh and the rest of them we barely get anything about chameleon who originally created him, where he's from, da-da-da-da-da. And so it's been like the ancillary of media that ends up doing this, where you've got Big Finish also do a nice trilogy of stories set after this, which also kind of like a quick hint, as you were saying, tries to explain away why chameleons like hit it away. And, and they do a nice job of that, but you actually get to this. We just find that some invader of Zarephast from Timelight used chameleon as weapons. So we don't know anything about those invaders. So to me, you're, you're bringing this remarkable android who can shapeshift and he's posing as the king john and there's no attempt to even explain where he comes from why he's being used why how chameleon who seems to have a mind of its own how he feels about the master using him i mean and it just, there just seems to be a real lost opportunity and dudley is spending all this time about you know cricket and castles and all this stuff that for some it's boring some it's nice detail but whatever but if you're going to take the time to expand the story the big reveal character which is chameleon nothing's done with that and it's really annoys me. he even changes the ending because the ending makes it clear that chameleon is joining them as companion and it actually leads into talking about the next story and that coda is not in this book it's a very different one well yeah it's another thing tegan's already lost her heathrow job by this point she's she's done being a stewardess and dudley's still all about the stewardess yeah, yeah. and i noticed when i started reading the five doctors for the next discussion <laughs> terence nix is talking about her that way too <laughs> it's like stop trying to make the australian air hostess thing happen it's already <laughs> over it's not going to happen that highlights and lowlights and well, the highlight came very early which is i actually thought it was very funny that coming right off of turlo being revealed as a would-be assassin the first scene is he's demanding how often is this thing serviced right. <laughs> complaining about the maintenance but then i thought it was actually this uh, lovely exchange here about concept of a refit 
And Turlo says that uh, the TARDIS get a refit from time to time. Like, get a what? A refit. Well, will you get one? And the doctor's like, I get a refit? Well, yes. And I thought that was actually a sort of nice, both funny and insightful conversation. But then I think the golden phrase of the book, well, maybe golden's not quite the word, is when we are told he produced the master's compressor from under his surcoat and moved to the Iron Maiden to make a minute examination of its surface while continuing to speak. <laughs> I consider the Mark Twain essay, The Literary Offenses of Fenimore Cooper, to be oh, one yes. of the most formative essays and humor pieces I have ever read. And minute examination is one of the phrases that he ridicules there. And once again, I could not figure out if the writer is being funny or not. He made a minute examination. And I think that kind of sums up my thoughts on the book. Very yeah. funny with Turlo complaining about the maintenance. Then he made a minute examination, and then the next page, Tegan squeaks. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't see Dudley reading anything by Mark Twain. I really can't. <laughs> uh, so, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow their own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when you get to an upcoming book, or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we get, have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.24. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it three and a half stars and says another story disliked by Peter Davison because it's by Terrence Dudley, who doesn't include much sci-fi, so therefore it's, quote, not really a Doctor Who story, unquote. I respectfully disagree. The story has its faults, but the worst one is, in my opinion, not of Dudley's making, the inclusion of the Master. While the Master's plots have, on occasion, been very local and low-key, in this story his plan hardly seems worth the effort. Dudley did make some mistakes. The relationship between the Doctor and Tegan is much more antagonistic than it is on screen, and the Doctor is very condescending. Also, the TARDIS doors open outwards. Yeah, I do that too. As I was reading this book, my mind kept turning to another story, The Time Meddler, and I reckon replacing the Master with the meddling monk with some adjustment to the fight scenes would be a definite improvement. It would never be a classic, but sometimes a change of pace makes for a palate cleanser between better stories. Something Dudley does get right, in my opinion, is language. Medieval English, and presumably other languages, is often tricky to render for modern audiences. Too accurate, and it's incomprehensible. Too modern, and it's unconvincing. I think he got the balance about right, with not a gadzooks in sight. Your mileage <laughs> may vary. There were quite a few additional scenes, and most of the changes were for the better, so a score of 3.5 doesn't seem outlandish to me. Craig gives it two stars and says the story is just okay, and the book version feels overly padded, with too many and too lengthy ruminations and speculations that don't ring true to what we know of the characters' natures. I thought the Doctor was downright nasty at times, and neither of the companions were ever my favorites. Chameleon, a robot under the Master's control, is introduced as a new companion, but the Master himself was almost the most likable character. 
I'd recommend this one only to completists. And finally, Daniel Kukwa gives it five stars and says, I have a soft spot for this otherwise maligned Fifth Doctor story, a two-part blink and you'll miss an adventure for which few people have any time or love. Luckily, the author has a measure of revenge via this staggeringly enjoyable novel. This is a supreme example of how to expand, improve, and enhance the TV story in print, and it remains one of the best target novelizations in the range, a special note on its handling of medieval history, absolutely sumptuous. What a contrast. Except for the fact that King John never went on the Crusades. I, yeah, that's fine. So, Dalton, out of five stars, what did you give this one? Uh, I had originally given it a three, but I think I'm going to give it a two. It suffers from a lot of the same problems that I, I had with Black Orchid and that Dudley needs to learn how to edit himself. If this is a two-part mm. story, there is no reason for it to be as long as it is. He just seems like he's just writing things to write things. Um, <laughs> I, I, I thought that the Doctor and Tegan's relationship was extremely strained and unusual, given that we don't usually see them sniping each other this much. They just seemed really overly negative on, on their part. So I, I would give it a two. Not not horribly written, but just overly written. Okay. And Allison? I am very surprised to hear that this is a two-parter. It's one of the longer novelizations that we've read that's in the regular target line instead of a virgin or a, or a similar. So yes, he does just like to hear his head roar, to paraphrase my grandparents. At the risk of being accused of, let's see here, what is it? Feminine superficiality. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to allow my anxiety to overcome my inhibitions. I'm just really, sorry, reading the hits here. And say, I, there were several things that I enjoyed about this one, but the things about it that were offensive were more like sad, if that makes sense, than attacking in a lot of ways. I think I'd end up with 1.5 overall, which is certainly not terrible, but not great. And I, maybe because I was excited about a uh, historical and it kind of did not live up to expectations at all. But I will end with a, a kind of an amusing line is that uh, someone is demanding to know whether or not someone is a demon. And someone cuts and no, he's not a demon. He's from London. So, yeah. <laughs> so there's some, definitely some enjoyment to be had. Yeah. Six of one, half dozen of another. Yeah, I get it. And Trey. So you're an English teacher, and do you know sometimes you get like student writing, and you just don't know how to grade it, and because there's such a mixture of good and bad. And, oh yes. And and you can tell that the kid put up, and then you've got like those eager writers, the 400 page or 400 word essay, and they're like, I wrote 2,000 words, aren't you proud of me? And I'm like, oh god, no, it's <laughs> medieval misfit. That I'm really struggling to come up with a thing because what I don't like where he gets Tegan and the Doctor wrong, that really annoys me. I don't like the lack of explanation of chameleon i think that's a wasted opportunity i agree with like one reviewers there's too much rumination but then i do like the character development i like family dynamics i liked the angles of the doctor and master basically using these people as pawns and trying to out manipulate them through influence which is very now and it's confidently written and there's some fun language and wordplay. so i'm going to kind of go straight down the middle and say stars for me like things that made me smile and there's things that just really annoyed me more than most of the novels because I'm, I'm usually pretty forgiving but yeah this this is really a hard one for me to pin down and free but it's more like a grudging okay i'm gonna be a fluttering flighty female 
and go back up to two because in my notes here I've just reconnected with the song we sing in praise of total war <laughs> later to free the tomb of christ our lord will put the known world to the sword and i think it's worth a half point just by itself oh it's a good song i'll, I'll give you that but it's not worth it to me to raise it a point i i'm i'm gonna stand in solidarity with dalton on this one and give it a two because as much as I'd like to give it a 2.5, because there are some things that are definitely better than the televised version, there's some things that I really like, such as the fact that the Doctor and Tegan actually work in concert to have her pushed into the TARDIS against her will and this kind of don't put me in the briar patch type thing, which I, I love and it doesn't happen on screen at all. Those are good additions, but they are so brought down by this just nasty, vicious, misogynistic relationship between the Doctor and Tegan, and I, I just can't enjoy it because of that. So as much as I'd like to like this, I, I can't. So for me, it's going to be two stars. Well, thank you all. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss the novelization of The Five Doctors with some very special guests whom we're still lining up. So stay tuned, as John Nathan Turner was fond of saying. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com and target book club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Doctor Who Podcast Network.